So welcome to Arise Church. Um, this is a pretty cool day. Uh, this is the day that the Lord has made, and we're going to rejoice and be glad in it and be thankful for what God is doing in our lives and in this city and in the lives of everybody on podcast and beyond um, who's listening. So welcome. So today, uh, we're, so we're going to be talking just about electing Jesus Christ as Savior. So we put these signs out, and that was interesting thing. It was a lot of fun. Um, I, we're kind of a political church in that, I guess, and so we put these signs out. And so I'm from Colorado, and there were a couple times when I was like in middle school and high school where we thought, hey, we, we lived across the street from a cattle rancher, and we thought, you know what? Wouldn't it be super cool and fun to go cow tipping? <laughs> Has anybody ever been cow tipping? No? Okay. Well, we like got dressed up to go do it. We never actually followed through with it, but I remember like you know, getting dressed up and like, you know, trying to go out at night. So what cow tipping is, is cows sleep standing up. And so, you know, if you sneak up on them while they're sleeping, you can just like push them and they'll like fall over before they wake up. So, <laughs> so we thought it'd be pretty fun. We heard about it, right? We had some cousins that were, uh, you know, from Alamosa and stuff and, you know, you know, some places like that. So then anyway, uh, so we never actually, but that's kind of like what putting the signs out was like. It was like, ooh, I'm not sure if I should be doing this, but it's kind of exciting, you know. So uh, anyway, if anybody wants to help with that next time, that'd be great. It's a lot of fun, kind of like cow tipping. Um, and then, like I mentioned, some people are going to disagree with the approach. Like there's some churches whose doctrine is going to, they're going to say, you can't elect Jesus. He has to choose you. And then, hey, you know what? There's truth in that. But you know what? There's also truth in Peter saying to the people who, said to him after he preached an open-air sermon they said what should we do and peter basically said respond i'm using it synonymously with elect what peter specifically said is repent and be baptized in the name of the lord jesus christ and you should be saved you and your family so to say there's no response needed is incorrect and so we are just saying elect jesus we're saying respond to jesus anyway and that's fine if, you know, people want to throw rocks at me for, you know, putting, you know, saying it like that. I am okay with that. If we can reach one person through the signs, if one person is drawn an inch closer to Jesus, Amen. then it's worth it. So, because actually he likes what we're doing. He thinks it's pretty cool. So, and um, anyway, so it requires that a person respond to Jesus as part of receiving salvation, right? So each sign is a call for people to respond to Jesus. And um, but not all people are going to respond, right? Some people are going to be combative. There's some people that just really hate Jesus as part of their core. They're like, you know what? I hate that name. I wish people would stop talking. And they like pull the signs out and throw them away and stuff. There's people like that. And then there's also people who just and those people they are not ready to hear the message yet. You know, God's still going to keep putting it in front of them, but you know they're not ready to receive it. So. But there's other people that just aren't completely convinced. You know, they have objections. They're like honest objections. They're like, you know what? I just can't get get through this thought. You know, this is what I'm stuck on, and they just haven't had anybody to like sit down patiently with them and work through some of those honest objections. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do a little bit of that. We're going to take a look at some objections that people have from people who are you know not really convinced yet. Maybe they come from a non-Christian worldview. So we're going to put our scientist hat on today. You guys are all going to be scientists today, and we're going to look at three of the most common objections. We're going to just take a look at them, hopefully do an evaluation, answer some questions along the way. So here they are. Objection number one, there isn't a heaven. Objection one, there is not a heaven. So that's 
That, that's one objection that people, people have, a lot of people have. Objection number two, I don't need a savior. That's another objection. And then number three, there are other paths to heaven. Okay? There is no heaven. I don't need a savior, and there are other paths to heaven. So we're going to be taking a look at those three. So objection number one, go ahead and start turning to John 16. We're going to be looking at John 16. And so we just think there's value. You know, we want people to turn in their own Bible because there's value in, you know, reading it for yourself. And uh, while we, while we you know, move, move along through a passage, so to John 16. So, so objection number one, there isn't a heaven. So, so my response is, well, how do you know? How do you know? You know? You don't know. That's the point. The existence of heaven, you know what? It can't be objectively determined. It's, we're inside this box of space and time, and we can't stand outside the box and look at heaven because it's actually the other way around. You know, we're inside the box. Heaven's outside the box looking at us. We can't take ourselves outside the box of where we're at and outside the box of heaven so we could objectively look at heaven. It just doesn't work that way. So from the inside of the box, you can't objectively prove that there is or is not a heaven. You can't prove either one, right? You can't prove it, and you can't disprove it. But So you have to rely on the evidence, right? So what's the evidence? Well, we have evidence of people who have actually gone there and come back, and Jesus is the biggest example. So he existed in heaven before the earth was created. Right, And then he came to earth. And so that's what he says in John 16. We're going to read verses 27 and 28. Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and you have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. So he came from the Father into the world. And again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So he came from the Father who's in heaven, you know, our Father who art in heaven. So he came from heaven down to the world, and then he's going to go from the world back to the Father, back to heaven, okay? So Jesus is somebody who's actually been there. That's a piece of evidence, and and that's what the New Testament is all about. So the interesting thing is most people who claim, you know, who, who would like it, you know, you know, defensive about this, there is no heaven. The interesting thing is they've never even read the New Testament. So that's the part of the Bible, the New Testament, that talks about Jesus, the one who originated in heaven then came to earth and is going back it's all it's all about him right and so it includes his teachings the things he did and firsthand accounts of his resurrection his death his resurrection his ascension back into heaven so if we're going to be scientists about this shouldn't we at least look at the evidence at least look at it maybe read it now you can be you can you can say you're a scientist and be somebody who's pushing their own agenda but that doesn't make you a scientist that makes you an advertiser so don't call yourself a scientist if you're just promoting your own advertisements without, you know, taking into account things that challenge your hypothesis. That's not intellectually honest. So if we're truly scientists and intellectually honest, then we have to listen to at least what the New Testament has to say about heaven, about Jesus. So it's interesting. Just as humans, we expect and therefore we prepare. It's interesting how those two things are just so linked, right? So... Why do you set your alarm clock? Because you expect tomorrow to happen, and so you want to be prepared for it when it does happen, you know. And so you want to be able to get a start on the day and get all your things done. So you prepare for to, for for the sun to rise tomorrow. You expect that to happen, so you prepare by setting your alarm clock. Okay? You go to college. People go to college. Why? Because they expect the next thing in their life to happen, right? When they move out of, out of the parents' house, and so all of a sudden they get go into this scary place called the real world where you need a job. And so they say, you know what, we, I expect to have to transition into that real world, so therefore I'm going to prepare. I'm going to go to college. People save money for retirement. 
Why? They expect to be able to live longer than you know their working years, and so they save money. That's that they expect that, so they prepare by saving money, right? That kind of thing. It, people won't even generally go on a day trip to the beach without preparing for it, even over preparing for it. So they're you know the the hotels might be booked, so you got to book in advance. You might go through some tolls, so bring your Easy Pass or bring some cash, right? Um, the sunshine might be particularly strong that day, so you got to bring your you know your suntan lotion or your sunscreen. You might run into car trouble, so you check your tire pressure, you check your oil, do you do things like this? All these things you're you're expecting to go to the beach, so you make all these preparations, right? You've, you're prepared for every contingency. So it's interesting that the same people that go to college and go to grad school and you know save for retirement who won't even go to the beach without over preparing, some of these are the same people who do absolutely nothing to prepare for the biggest transition of their entire existence. They plunge into eternity with nothing but Hope, and I, and I use that really weakly, by the way. No investigation, no objective evidence from the other side, no looking at the evidence, no understanding of what's going to happen on the other side. Therefore, no. They expect, you got to expect you're going to die. That's just the way it goes. Everybody's going to die sooner or later. And so you, you expect to go to the beach, you prepare for it, but you expect to die and you don't prepare for it? That makes no sense. And so, by the way, it's only a weak hope for the best. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm going to throw myself off of this cliff of eternity and hope that nothing happens or that something happens and it's good. I don't know. So in my work, hope is really a four-letter dirty word. It is, that's what hope is, to, put, to say, oh, I hope that we did the engineering good enough. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not how we do things. You do the engineering good enough. We don't hope in anything. So to put all your, bas all your eggs in this basket of, quote, hope that things will go well as you transition into the biggest change of your entire existence is really, really foolish. It's like they hand wave it away. It's never going to happen. Don't worry about it and make no preparations. Isn't that amazing? Masses of people who expect and therefore prepare fail completely when it comes to eternity. Newsflash, you're going to die. I'm going to die. It's going to happen. Every, just, just like the sun came up today, every person is going to cross over into eternity. And on that day when you take your last breath, you're going to wake up in a place that you have never been, and it's going to be a place that you will never leave. So to claim there's no heaven and then stake your entire eternal existence on it with no evidence, without even looking at the evidence, is the single biggest foolish gamble that a person can ever make in their lifetime. But people do it every day. Smart people do it every day. But you know, even if you live, let's say you live to 90 or 100 years, how about 120? Even that drop in the bucket compared to eternity. Eternity lasts and lasts and lasts forever and ever and ever. The Bible says you have an everlasting, exist an everlasting existence. You will never cease to be, but you will be found in one of two places when you cross over that day. It'll either be really hot and painful, or it'll be a perfect place of peace and bliss, and there's nothing in between. So we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 20. Feel free to turn there quickly. It's in the back of the book, Revelation 20. I think people are just scared to you know, come to grips with eternity because they're, they're so fearful that God's mad at them. And if they'd only slow down long enough to listen, they'd find out that God is... God loves them, Amen. but they need the antidote. We'll talk about that. Okay, so Revelation 20, and we're going to read verses 10 and then through 21, verses 4. 
So this is John who wrote the book of Revelation. And he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There should be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So that's about hell and the lake of fire is the first part, and heaven is the second part. So with all that's at stake, shouldn't you do something more about death and eternity than just hand wave it away? I recommend that you do. Something kind of scientific like, hey, read the New Testament. How about that? Don't be an advertiser. Be a scientist. So that's objection number one. Objection number two, I don't need a savior. So this one's rooted in not knowing what salvation is really about. You know, it's really like, what do I need to be saved from? I think I'm doing just fine. And 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 that's fine. You might feel like you're doing just fine, but you know, the fact that you haven't really come to terms with um, where you stand with God is kind of proof that you're not doing just fine. So to answer this question, you have to see what the Bible says that Jesus is supposed to save us from, right? <clears throat> so just a couple of handy scriptures, Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, and for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So scripturally, what everybody needs salvation from is our sins. And you know, if you're, if, if you're honest with yourself, you'd have to admit that you do things that you shouldn't do, right? You know they're wrong. You hurt people. You act, you know, complete selfishly at other people's expense. You know, use the name of the Lord in vain. All that kind of stuff. You wound your own conscience, right? This happens so, to, you know, every day to almost every person up. And even though you know you're doing things that are wrong, you do them again and again. It's, you know, it's if you could just delete those things out of your life and move on without having those, I'll call them issues, then you would. Right? That's how you know that you're doing things wrong. But you can't because life your life is not what's really going on is your life is not aligned properly and so if you're driving a car one way you can tell with your alignment by the way you know you see the, the free alignment check people places say free alignment check well the reason why is because they know if you're stopping in there it's because your alignment is messed up and if your alignment's messed up then they're going to get four hundred dollars out of you to, to fix your alignment so anyway and you but you need your alignment fixed otherwise it's going to wear your tires unevenly and all that kind of stuff so how can you tell if your car is misaligned? When you're driving down the road, if you just get on a straight, 
on a straight road and keep your hands just very lightly on the wheel. If it goes straight, then you're pretty much, that's a pretty good test that you're in alignment. The car's still going straight, even with, when you're not like putting pressure on the wheel to you know, turn it this way or that way. But if, if, if as you just very gently, you know, keep your hands on the wheel, if, if, it's, if the wheel starts to turn and to pull one way, well, then you know you're out of alignment. And that's the same thing that happens in our lives. We know we're out of alignment because we keep veering to the wrong side of the road to do the wrong things, right? And so in Matthew um, one twenty one, that's where Jesus gets his name. He's named, right, by the angel that came to Joseph. And it says, she will give birth to a son, talking about Mary, and you shall give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's what we need salvation from. So if we're honest with ourselves, you'd say, you know what, there are things I do wrong. Well, that's exactly what you need salvation from. That's what Jesus came to save people from, sin, right? But isn't education the answer? How about self-help? Can I fix myself if I go to one of these self-help gurus? No, because you know what, even if education did like get your thinking straight, it can't erase things you've done wrong in the past. Those still are credited to your account unless you give them to Jesus. And even if self-help, even if you fix yourself from here on out that you can will your way to do what's right, that still doesn't give you forgiveness from all the times you've done it wrong in your past. Jesus gives forgiveness. And, and, and he changes our innermost desires. Right? You can modify behaviors, but you can't change what's on the inside of you. That crooked bent has to be changed by the Lord himself. Only he can do that. 2 Timothy 1.9 says... <clears throat> It's talking about God, and it says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. So we're, we're saved from sin, and we're saved to God's purpose, to do good works, to live his way. God needs agents here in the earth, and you're one of them. That's what, that's what our calling is, to be his representatives here. So Jesus is on the ballot for Savior, this election, every day is election day for, for each person. And you can elect Jesus to be your own Savior today. So I took a look for a job description for New York State Senators. And you know, I just couldn't find one. I, I think what the job description is, is, is really is, is like, you know, act important and, you know, and probably that's about it. Act, act important and take money. Maybe, maybe that's all. I, I don't know. I couldn't find a job description. But, you know, I could kind of put together a job description of Savior for mankind. So here we go. Elect Jesus as Savior. Here's the job description. So if anybody wants to apply for the job position of Savior, this is what the posting would look like. <clears throat> Requirement. Must be the creator of the world. Okay. Well, that pretty much rules out everybody. <laughs> well, we'll continue. Okay. Um, number two must be willing to lay aside all divine power and heavenly glory in order to take on flesh and be restricted to a human body for about 33 years. Number two. Okay. Requirement number three, must live a full human life without sin, completely pure in every word, every thought, every action, for every second. Number four, must accept to your personal account the liability for the sins of the entire world. Every atrocious, awful, and appalling act that has ever been committed will be attributed to you for punishment. Number five, must be willing to accept the punishment of death for the sins of all mankind. Must willingly accept it. And number six, must die the most agonizing death available. 
alone, no friends, and while being mocked. Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. You had me a creator, you know? But that list, all of that list, is what it takes to be scripturally qualified for this office of Savior. Savior of mankind is the hugest thing that could ever be called somebody. Jesus Christ, we're not electing him as Savior. He is Savior. Yeah. We're electing him to be our own Savior. Amen. We're choosing him. <clears throat> so there's only one candidate who, fits the, who, who fills the requirements, and his name is Jesus. Philippians 2.9 says, Because Jesus gave his life on the cross, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that's hell, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no question on if you'll bow your knee to Jesus. The question is only when and where. If you won't do it here on earth, then you will do it in hell. And if you'll do it here on earth, then you will also do it in heaven. So the question is, if you don't want to elect Jesus to be Savior of your life, then who are you going to elect? Who else do you know who has even one of those qualifications that are required to satisfy God's wrath for the punishment of your sins? And who else would be willing to die in your place? Who else can save you from your sins and give you a new life? Nobody can, and to be honest with you, nobody likes you enough to do it. Nobody would want to. Only Jesus. Nobody would do that but Jesus. Nobody likes me enough to do that. Nobody. Only Jesus would do that. Objection number three. There are other paths to heaven. Okay, so go ahead and turn to John 14. We're going we're gonna to read it in a minute, but in, while you're turning there... <clears throat> So a family member brought me and my family, this is last year, to Radio City Music Hall for their, you know, Christmas Rockettes Spectacular. Radio City and Rockettes Christmas Spectacular. We were invited, so we just show, we were told tickets are waiting, just meet us there. So we showed up. We didn't, you know, I didn't bother checking into prices. I didn't need to. And then the tickets were placed in my hand, so I could give them to the usher, right, the ticket taker. And only then did I see the purchase price on the ticket and the seat on the ticket. So I figured with the group our size, we'd be like way up in the orchestra section. I know that's pretty expensive, but I figured, hey, that would be awesome if we were up in the orchestra section. Hey, I'm okay, or not orchestra, the balcony. If we were way up at the very top, that's fine. This is going to be awesome anyway, right? It's going to be really neat. They do a really neat Jesus presentation there. They really do. It's neat. And so um, anyway, and then I, I looked at the tickets, and it didn't say balcony like I expected. It said orchestra. That's like, if you, if you don't know, that's like, the prime seats right down in front, about 15 rows back, maybe something like that. And then I saw the ticket price. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. The seat location is not what I expected, and the price was more than I could afford. If I checked it myself in advance, I would have objected. I would have been like, you know what? That's a lot of money. How about we just go look at Rockefeller Center? That's neat. That's really neat. And the window dressings at Macy's, that's a, that's a treat for us. You know, we, It doesn't take much for us. We think that's awesome. Let's do that. That's free. But this person was motivated by love. They just wanted to bless us with a really cool experience that we, a family of six, wouldn't be able to normally afford. I would not have known the seat location or the cost 
unless I had accepted the ticket. Only then did I see and understand the location and the cost. So the reason why people think there's many paths to heaven is because they've never received a ticket themselves. So they don't know the cost per ticket. It's only when you accept the ticket that Jesus Christ offers can, that you can see and understand the cost of that ticket. Amen. It's only revealed to the person holding the ticket. So the people who say, oh, there's many paths to heaven, that's, they're just saying, look, I don't have a ticket myself. Because if I had a ticket myself, then I'd tell you there's really only one way. The price is way too high for there to be any other way. So the cost per ticket, we're just going to take a look quickly at Psalm 49. And keep, keep, keep that other place. We're going to read that. If you want to turn to Psalm 49, that's fine. Psalm 49, verse 6 through 9. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them by any means can redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever, that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. If you want to get somebody out of eternity so they don't, so they could live for eternity, out of the pit for eternity, so they could live for eternity, the cost is higher than anybody could ever pay. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in how much riches they've got, not even one of them can by any means redeem even their brother, you know, who's closest to them, or give to God a ransom for them. For the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever. Money can't buy your way out of hell to give you eternal life. The entry price is literally the blood of Jesus Christ. If Jesus isn't the only way, then his death was the most magnificent display of stupidity that the world has ever known. Look, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus agonized over what he was going to go through so much that he sweated blood just by thinking about it. Now, remember who Jesus was. Okay, some people paint him as this pansy. No, no, no. <laughs> he was the only one that had the inner fortitude to stand up to the entire religious establishment. He walked on water. You ever tried that? No? He calmed storms with a word. Does the weather obey you? He threw demons out of people's lives just with a simple word. You've seen horror movies probably, maybe you know, a long time ago. By the way, guns, knives, garlic, those things really don't scare demons. They're only affected by spiritual warfare. So you might think you're pretty tough, but would you, would you really go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the demon and your only weapon is your speech? Sounds like fun, right? Jesus did it and won every single time. Amen. There was once that he cast out one called Legion. You know what a Legion was back then? About, about 6,000. 6,100 was you know, the, the, the closest you know, approximation from what was used for the term legion by the Romans later, shortly later, about that time. 6,000 demons, he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, and they all obeyed him with a simple word. You know what that word was? Go. That's all it took. He was not a wimp. Jesus was not a weak man. He feared nothing. He was the epitome of perfect strength, and he sweated blood at the thought of what he was going to go through. He said, Father, if there's any other way that you could redeem mankind to yourself, then please do it that way instead. Because I'm, so, I'm horrified at the preview of what's going to happen to me. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus asked for the backup plan to happen, but there was no backup plan. Jesus' death for our sins was the plan, and it was the only plan. 
fate of salvation of the world rested on his shoulders and his shoulders alone. So if Jesus is not the only way, if there was a second way or another path, then his death was the most magnificent display of stupidity the world's ever known. So really, if, if you say there's another path, that's really what you're saying, is Jesus was the biggest fool that ever lived. So you have a choice. You can say that. You know what I mean? You really can. But you can't cling to Jesus as a way, but not the only way. He hasn't left that open to us. If you're so convinced that Jesus is the ultimate model of stupidity, well, then we're scientists, aren't we? You have to test that hypothesis. How are you going to do that? Read the New Testament. I mean, no scientist would determine a hypothesis. Then bet their entire career, their entire life savings with, on it without first testing it, would they? But by saying there's another way and not even bothering to go and look at the evidence, that's exactly what you're doing. That's not a scientist. If the New Testament is not true, hey, then you lost nothing. But if it is true, then you've gained a much better seat in eternity. John 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, are many places, many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know, and you know the way. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. How many come to the Father except through Jesus? No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is only one way. And the people who say there is no, or there are other ways have convinced themselves otherwise for whatever reason, but they have not listened to what Jesus says in the New Testament. So you owe it to yourself to read the New Testament. Eternity is way too long to be wrong on this. Read it. And then objection number four. Oh, surprise one. I pulled this one out of my back pocket. <laughs> I didn't tell you this was coming until now. You know why? Because this is probably the biggest objection that there is out there. What it really is is, I don't want to be like the Christians I know. This is the person that says, most Christians I know are emotionally weak. They're intellectually wimpy. They're pushovers in life. And there's simply no fun. I don't want to be like them. That's, that's an objection. That's a pretty big objection. I can understand your perspective, but you know what? There's something more that you really need to consider. On, that, on the day when you take your last breath and open your eyes on the other side, there's this thing that's going to happen, and we're going to call it today, we're going to call it the Great Reversal. <clears throat> the Great Reversal. So, story. I was hiking with family and friends. This was a couple weeks ago. There were about 30 of us all together. We all started out the trailhead, and we started going up this trail. It's going to be about a three-mile hike, if I remember right. Maybe two miles up, two miles back. Anyway, it was going to be a, it was going to be a ways, right? About, about that far? Something like that. Two or three miles there and two or three miles back. So it was going to be, you know, a bit of a hike. And so within about 10 or 15 minutes, people started kind of fanning out in their distribution based on their relative speeds, right? And so, um, in, you know, people kind of, you know, the faster people kind of went ahead. And then me and Soiki were kind of back with Madeline. So we were kind of limited by the pace of a four-year-old. So we weren't, weren't super fast. I'm a little competitive still. So I was trying to catch up. But you know what? Being stuck at Madeline's pace, it just wasn't going to work. So I gave up trying to catch up. 
but then we got to like we got to about the you know two thirds point or so, and then we turned around to go back while everybody else made it to the you know all the way point, and then they turned around to come back. And then an interesting thing happened when everybody turned around to go the other way. All of a sudden, we were in the front of the pack. <laughs> it was like we were we were leading the way now. Everyone was behind us. They were trying to catch up to us. Now I like running races that way, where every where I'm ahead of everybody. I think that's a lot more fun. But anyway. So the way the world's going today, the Christians are at the back of the line. We're called emotionally weak or intellectually wimpy or pushovers or no fun, whatever. We're scored for our narrow beliefs, pushed to the corner of society. We're excluded because we're not fun. And so we, we're, we become the butt of the jokes. But you know what? There's going to be a day when all that's reversed. That's the great reversal as individuals and as a society. So it happens as a society when revival sweeps this area, and that's going to happen. We're believing for it. Everyone's going to start running to Jesus. And then there's going to be a difference between Johnny come lately and Susan who made it all happen. And you're here right now making it to happen in advance. You're going to be at the way at the front of the line. All these things that we're doing here, this is all reward that's accounted to you. This is really cool. This puts you at the front of the line. It doesn't look like it, but you know what? When this great reversal happens in society, that's exactly what will happen. So, and so it happens as a society. It also happens as individuals. So every person's going to pass away. We talked about that. And then the people who spent their entire lives ignoring the coming of eternity, running away from Jesus, following the path you know, of Hollywood, filling themselves with Hollywood and TV shows, living for themselves, hating others, and domineering others, those people are going to suddenly find themselves face-to-face -face with their creator. That's Jesus. And in that instant, they're going to weave together a story of how they were tight in relationship with him. The Bible talks about it in Matthew 7, 21. They're going to say things like, Lord, Lord, you taught in our streets. We ate and drank in your presence. You know, we were tight, man. We prophesied in your name. I told somebody about you, Jesus. We cast out demons in your name and did all these great things, and it, was, and it was in your name. It's like they're saying, Jesus, 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 don't you see? It's, it's been all about you, Lord. Everything I did, it was, it was about you. It was, it was about you. It was for you. Everything I did, come on. You, please, accept me into your kingdom. And Jesus is going to respond and basically say, you are such a liar. And I see through your charade, you, you didn't live for me. You lived for yourself. You did every wrong thing I told you not to do. You hurt others. You domineered them. You hurt me. You are so gone. And that's when they're going to hear the most frightening words that could ever be heard from the Lord's mouth. Depart from me, you who practice evil. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can come to Jesus now and be on good terms with him. And so when you meet him on that day, he gives you a different response. By coming to Jesus. Simply by saying yes to Jesus. So we're going to take a look at Luke 13. Feel free to go ahead and turn over there. Luke 13. Verses 22 through 30. And you're going to see a lot of the same things we talked about just woven through here. A lot of these same, same principles that we just talked through. You're going to see them in several different places. So. <clears throat> or you know different ways in this just in this parable so or not in this parable this this teaching so Luke 13 verses 22 
And he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open for us. And he will answer and say to you, I do not know you where you are from. Then you will begin to say to him, We ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. They will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. And indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. That's the great reversal. You can avoid those frightening words by accepting Jesus' gift of eternal life, the ticket that he's paid for. So we're just going to take a moment. We're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. And wherever you're at, you can just pray these in your own words, right where you're at. And God will do a huge, miraculous thing in your heart. Just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness. Can you please forgive me? And if you're asking that of the Lord, then he's responding right now with a work in your heart by changing you from the inside out. It may not look like a big change on the outside, but on the inside you know it's a big change. Look, if Jesus had failed, if he didn't follow through, with giving his life as a ransom for sin, if he had avoided the cross, then all of mankind would have been lost to hell forever. But Jesus didn't fail. He didn't fail you. He didn't fail me. He couldn't fail. He is that powerful. Jesus died on the cross, and he rose to life three days later to demonstrate his power that he conquered sin in the grave. Death has no more power over God's people. And Jesus has commissioned us to preach his good news to the nations. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus. Heavenly Father, I just ask that for anybody who has chosen Jesus today, who's elected Jesus to be their own Savior today, I ask that you would do a powerful work in their lives right now. I ask that you would renew them from the inside out, from the ground up, that you would change them on the inside so much that they would see a difference when they look in the mirror and that they would find that they are loved by you and that you are their you know, best friend from now on and that they would uh, just love your presence and that you would shower your love upon them and that they would um, know who you are. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would do a powerful work and a mighty thing in these people's lives. You would protect them from evil, that you would teach them your way, that you would open their eyes to see your truth and to hear your voice and that you would just shower, you know, blessing upon them. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what Jesus has done for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for going to the cross. Thank you for um, offering salvation to us and for helping us to respond to you. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen.